the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. In a local school as well, and it's my privilege to speak to us this morning in this series. But we have been looking at the Book of Romans. I think this is the ninth week now. Don't worry, we're nearly there. Uh, the tenth one is coming shortly. We've been following, essentially, this book, Romans, A Letter That Makes Sense of Life, by that man, Andrew Ollerton. And uh, if you've been with us, you'll be familiar with this mountain image that we've been using as we've kind of gone uh, through the book. And this, we are well and truly on the descent as we come back to planet Earth, essentially. And on the right-hand side, uh, you can see uh, the word community over there. And that's where we are this morning in Romans 13 and 14. Now, before we jump into it, um, it's important to note that there has been, uh, and we may not have spotted it, there's been a bit of a gear change in Romans. And it happened last week when we were joined by the brilliant Sam and Sarah Hargreaves. uh, And they helped us look at just the first two verses of Romans 12. Uh, in basic terms, if you want to know about um, the book of Romans, uh, it splits broadly into two sections. Romans 1 to 11 is all the things that God has done for us, and 12 to 15 are how we should live in response. Uh, you get some of that, don't you, in that image? You see that? We hear on the way up to the top, salvation, peace, freedom, and hope. And as we come back, we're working out what it means to live for Jesus day to day in this world. And the word therefore at the start of chapter 12, uh, what uh, Paul is, is basically saying, and this is why the song choice was so good, he says, if you've decided to follow Jesus and there's no turning back, then you will live like this. So if you've understood everything up until this point in Romans 11, then actually Romans 12 to 15, you're going to put into action. Um, I made this slide a while ago, but I just want to give it one more air because it helps us understand it, but also because it took me ages to make, if I'm honest. Um, So the book of Romans, you see, you read chapters 1 to 15. We we ask ourselves this question at the end of chapter 11, do we think God is amazing? And if you answer that question, no, then your job is to go and read them again, okay? Um, And keep getting in that loop. If you get out of that loop and you think that, that, yes, I think God's amazing, uh, then carry on reading the rest of Romans. Quick reminder, it only takes an hour to read. Have a go if you haven't already. Uh, you're confronted with this question, and this question is, will you put into practice these things that we're looking at? If you answer no, guess what you do? You go back to the start again, and you get stuck in the loop. If you get to the end of Romans, and you go, yes, God is amazing, and I'm going to put this stuff into practice, then let's go for it. And what will happen is that this world will transform as a result, because I can promise you uh, two things. Um, if we put this, this teaching, uh, last week's teaching, and the next teaching into practice, two things will happen. One thing that will happen is that you will personally flourish. If you put this stuff into action, you will personally flourish. Now, it will not necessarily be easy. It will not necessarily be straightforward. But you will become more of the person that God calls you to be. And secondly, if all of us put this stuff into practice in Romans 12 to 15, then you know what? This church, this community in this city will flourish too. And things will change. Now, I want to set up these two chapters, 13 and 14. And to do that, I just need to go back to 2016. Uh, immediately after the UK voted to leave the EU. 
Now, the demand for a particular item skyrocketed literally the day after Brexit. Now, I was hoping to have the item to hand this morning. I could show it to you because it's very, very precious. Does anybody know what's behind uh, that thing that I've blocked out there? Due to increased demand for... <gasps> there it is, yeah. I heard it. Irish passport forms. <laughs> oh, my word. I, I was hope I can't get one. I, I literally can't get one. I tried James Mulcahy, but he didn't have one either. Um, essentially, after uh, the, the uh, UK voted to leave the EU, demand for Irish passports skyrocketed. And uh, the demand has grown ever since. Uh, there was this idea uh, that they would be very, very useful. Um, uh, but I can't get one because you can only get an Irish passport by birth, descent, or through naturalisation. I do not qualify for any of those. Um, but this rush has been brought on because people thought having two of these may be an advantage for sort of getting in front of queues, getting access to various places. And uh, Britain is one of uh, a few European countries that allow you to have dual citizenship, to have two pa passports. And whilst you cannot uh, live in two places, so you can't live in the UK and Ireland simultaneously, uh, you can have roles and responsibilities. So there's probably people in this room right now who do own two passports. Now, if you follow Jesus, here comes the tenuous link, um, not literally, not literally, but you do have two passports. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are, in its essence, a dual citizen, I'm a dual citizen. Uh, firstly, I, am, I was born in a physical country like we all were. I was born in Manchester in the UK. Uh, and uh, I am subject to our secular government. But as well as having my passport, there's another passport I have as a follower of Jesus. Uh, I've been born again into a spiritual realm where Jesus is king. So I'm a citizen of the UK but I'm also a citizen of God's kingdom too. And if you follow Jesus, you're a citizen in two places too. And you have rights and responsibilities in both of those realms. And the good news about Romans 13 and Romans 14 is it tells us about both of those essentially, our two passports. In Romans 13, we learn about our responsibilities as members of society in the UK and in Romans 14, we learn about our responsibilities and our obligations to one another as part of a Christian community. Uh, so that's what we're desperately going to try and explore, just that small matter in a few, few minutes together. Let's read parts of it. We're not going to read all of it. Let's read Romans 13, 1 to 7. Do follow along. I'll put it on the screen as well. Here comes Romans 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do, will do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, for those, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear or of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servant, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. 
This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Pretty tough, that, isn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that, uh, as always, we can read this Bible. We know people in other parts of the world can't. Father, some of the teaching we read is, is tough and, and maybe confusing. Help us to understand what you want to say to us. And more importantly than understanding it, Father, help us to live this later when we leave this place uh, and go into this world, we pray. Amen. Some people might be surprised that the Bible talks about things like that. That is the uh, longest passage in the whole of Scripture uh, about how Christians are to think about government. Uh, Romans 13, those first verses there. And at the start, we learn something really important, don't we? Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except which God has established. The, The authorities that exist have been established by God. I know some of you are not happy with that. That's right. The authorities that exist have been established by God. We may not vote for someone, but the Bible says that we should respect their God-given mandate as their authority has been delegated by God. We should subject ourselves to those in authority, it says. Now, that does not mean that God approves of every government. It doesn't mean that he approves of every misuse and abuse of power. But it does mean that authority rightly used is a good thing. If you've ever been to a school, a school without rules is not a good place. If you've ever been to a country where there's no government, it's anarchy. Um, Human government, law order is a good thing. Uh, Douglas Moo once said this, Government is more than a nuisance to be put up with. It's an institution established by God to accomplish some of his purposes on earth. And if you're still not happy, the bit that cements this in, you saw it there, didn't you, in verse 4. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Whether they realize it or not, these people in authority are God's servants. They are God's servants for peace, justice, and order. Now, I don't know if the people on the screen have viewed themselves in that way, but that is how God views them. They, all leaders, are God's servants. They're accountable to him and are given authority by him for the good of all in society, for every single person, the least, the last, the lost, the rich, the poor, everyone. And now, for, uh, if, if you find that difficult to hear, for first century Christian readers in Rome, this would have probably been even more difficult uh, to hear. Because around the time that Paul wrote Romans, uh, Nero became the emperor of Rome. And if you think modern day leaders are bad, you just wait to hear what they got up to back then. Uh, for example, uh, the great fire in Rome happened around this time. And it destroyed two-thirds of Rome. Now, Nero needed a scapegoat. He needed someone to pin this on. Who did he pin it on? Well, he turned and he picked on the Christians who were a small and vulnerable minority, and he used them. He blamed them for the fire, he persecuted them, and many lost their lives. Now, some of you may be thinking this. In the context of that, and other things that we know now, should Christians really subject themselves to authority? I mean, we know from, they used to be up there, didn't there, something from Open Doors, which talked about the most persecuted places in the world. 
Should Christians really subject themselves to authority? Is Romans 13, this stuff that we're reading, is it timeless? Is it a permanent command to do this? Well, whenever you're looking at the Bible, if we're looking at one passage, it's always looked good to look at like the breadth of Scripture. What does the Bible say elsewhere about this? And the Bible seems to say two things that are important about society and authority. Uh, firstly, this, we're called to be good citizens. We're not called to just kind of sit there and be passive. We're called to be active people doing good in this world. We need to be people who campaign and shout about it when we see injustice. When we see oppression, we shouldn't be scared to protest, for example. Uh, Esau Macaulay wrote this once. He said, protest is not unbiblical. Just ask, well, we can't, but Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Harriet Tubman. Protest not unbiblical. It's a manifestation of our analysis of the human condition in light of God's own word and vision for the future. That's quite hard, that last bit. Uh, try this, Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. So firstly, when governments and authorities oppress, we mustn't just stand by, we must challenge. And secondly, there may be moments, very, very occasional moments, when civil disobedience is actually needed. Now, this will not be the norm by any stretch. But if rulers ask us to do something that God forbids, or if rulers ask us not to do something that God commands, then we may have to take a different course of action. Can I give you an example? Uh, not long ago, we didn't sit here like this, did we? In COVID, we were sat uh, one, every other row, masks on and everything. And as leaders within this church, we chose to follow those instructions. We didn't feel there was a need for civil disobedience. We thought it's just a wise thing that our leaders are doing. But if right now, uh, we turn on BBC News right now, and Rishi or someone else has said, right, Christians can no longer meet and prayer is banned, as leaders we may take a very different course of action. We've just got to work out what it is. There'll be times when we need to make a stand, but broadly speaking, we are called to respect at those in authority and to pray for them. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Whatever we think of decisions that are made, we're called to pray and respect authority, protest where we protest, and very, very occasionally disobey. If you are upset with the low traffic neighborhood in Whipton, and I know many of you are, probably more controversial than anything, isn't it? We are called to respect authority. We're called to challenge. We're called to pray. Whether you think on a local level, a national level, or a global level, let's be prayers. We have a huge year, don't we? Two massive elections that are coming up, one in the UK, one in the US. Let's be people, first and foremost, who pray. Um, just before we jump on to chapter 14 and our roles and responsibilities to one another, there's more than this, isn't there? It's, 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 I hope you get from the reading, it's all active. Look at verse 7. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, uh, revenue. If respect, respect. If honour, honour. We're called to contribute to the good of society. We don't come here and retreat and then we go out into the world, hope that the next six days go really quickly and then get back together again. We're, we're called to go and transform this world. And that's what this church is about. 
We don't want to withdraw, we want to engage. Lots of things going on here. We're, we're about to, we think we're about to try and open a new education centre in this place to open for the very young and vulnerable in society who are at great risk. Uh, we sense that that's a need in this community, and we're going to try and do that. Uh, each week we do stuff as well. Toddlers, Dementia Cafe, Tuesday at Belmont, Children's Youth Work, you name it. These are all ways that we try to bring God's kingdom to this world, to make an impact. And, and so those are the sort of things that we're called to do. And Romans 13, if with one of our passports, if you like, this is what we're called to do, to transform society uh, by showing Jesus to all the people we meet. Thing is, though, we've got other responsibilities too, don't we? Uh, Romans chapter 14. Um, uh, in Romans chapter 14, I've got to do this even quicker than I did Romans chapter 13. But essentially, in Romans chapter 14, we are called to live in peace with one another. Uh, we are called to be united. Uh, we live in a world, don't we, that falls out over everything. If you looked at the BBC feed right now, you could probably trace every story back to a fallout between two people, be it um, Christian and Jerry Horner, be it um, Israel and, and Palestine, whatever it is, it's a fallout. It's people who aren't agreeing. Now, they're complex issues. In Romans 14, though, um, Paul's primary concern is that the house churches that he, the letter is going to in Rome don't start to fall out. There's a real potential for them to mistrust one another. Uh, Phoebe is a lady mentioned at the start of Romans 16, who we'll come across uh, next week. Uh, she was a deacon from a church near Corinth, and she brought the letter to the church in Rome that Paul wrote while he stayed in Corinth. And uh, what she would have done is taken this letter and she'd have read it to different groups. She might have gone into like a big wealthy villa and read it. She men may have gone off to a um, sort of a, a backstreet workshop, uh, a poor workshop and read it. And the diversity and the opportunity to fall out would have been huge. And at the start of uh, Romans 14, we kind of clumsily walk in on like massive arguments. So Romans 14 verse 2, it's kicking off. One person's faith allows them to eat anything. Um, another person's faith allows them to only eat vegetables. Now, is there going to be a big bust up and a fallout? Paul says, I really hope not because do you know what? These are disputable matters says Paul. Grey areas, we might call them nowadays. Um, if you moved on to Romans 14.5, it's kicking off again. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Is Paul going to let them go, fight, fight? No. Paul then goes, each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. And in Romans 14, you see difference and you see disagreement. And the Apostle Paul, who writes uh, Romans it's not all that concerned if you read through Romans 14. In the Bible, you find lots of different degrees of disagreement. You find people degree, uh, disagreeing on serious issues, and you find people disagreeing on not-so-serious uh, issues. And there is so much that we could disagree on. Look what they're disagreeing on back then. There's so many things that we could disagree on right now. Uh, for example, you may not know this, some Christians don't celebrate Christmas. Uh, they see it as a pagan festival, and they point out that it is, uh, the Bible never commands us to celebrate it. And that's true. Personally, I, as a Christian, I do celebrate Christmas. I see it as a, 
a pagan festival that has been gospel transformed. And like I know many in this room, we take the opportunity to celebrate the fact that Emmanuel, God with us every Christmas time. Um, but there's no need to fall out over that. In Romans 14, Paul calls, uh, calls for us, uh, he doesn't call for us to nail down sides on everything. He's, he's bothered about, each of them should be convinced in their own mind, he's bothered about integrity. And God's goal for the church is not that we agree on everything, but that we stay united, we are loving and respectful. Uh, Andrew Ollerton has this lovely phrase, he talks about unity, not uniformity. Uh, Romans 15, 7, which we'll come to next week, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. I do not need to persuade you to adopt all of my personal opinions, and I don't need to feel threatened by any of our differences. Now, I would love to move on and go, that's that. I can't do that at this point. Um, I would love to say, you do you and me do me, and we'll be all okay. However, there are things that we can't disagree on. Uh, the late theologian uh, John Stott uh, talked about, before he died, primary and secondary issues. And uh, the idea was pretty simple. There are some things that are of primary importance. There are things that we must hold together on. Uh, much of that has been discussed, actually, in the first part as we've climbed the mountain in Romans. Sin, uh, judgment, uh, justification, our eternal future hope. And they're essential matters. If you go to your home group this week, you're going to hear a much better and fuller explanation from Andrew Ollerton uh, about his illustration on this. Uh, he talks about an open hand, and he talks about uh, a closed hand. You see, there are things in this life, and we've heard about them in Romans 14, that are disputable matters. And disputable matters, he says, must go in this open hand. So uh, things like worship styles, did we like the music, did we not like the music, that can go in the open hand, that's okay. Um, how old the earth is, um, uh, the, the sacraments, baptism, things like that. We don't need to tear ourselves apart over that, those sort of things. But there are some things, and some of you know where I'm going now, where, that we can't fall out over, that we need to agree on, that are of primary importance the death, oh, sorry, the life, the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus are of central importance. And uh, I often move that cross, primarily because I think our world moves it that way, and it's our job to keep it central all the time. You see, uh, we must agree on some things, and Jesus' death and resurrection is of primary importance. Jesus is the centerpiece of history, and he must be the cornerstone of our church forever. Now, it sounds really nice, doesn't it? But I know what you're thinking. Which one do you put in which hand? <laughs> and that's difficult. And there's a real danger, isn't there? Because if something should be in there, and we try and jam it in there, then suddenly we're going to be intolerant and falling out. And equally, if something that should be in there ends up here, then this is going off centre stage, isn't it? And we're going off the rails. And that's really difficult. And I would love to give you a full and complete answer to that question. But I can't do that. That's really difficult. And I'd need about seven days to do something like that. It's really hard, isn't it? Now, we are going to fall out as followers of Jesus at some point. We're not going to agree on everything. 
We see that in Romans 14. But what's really important is how we disagree. And rather than me talk about this, um, uh, Ken Benjamin from LICC, um, an organization we did, I just spotted him doing this beautiful thing on disagreeing well. And I just thought this is wonderful to hear. It's a change of my voice as well. But just have a listen to this. This is how we can maybe stay united, Romans 14 style. I have the privilege in my role of travelling to churches around the UK and spending time with all sorts of churches. It's great. I love it. I love the opportunity and the variety. But, and this won't shock you, we're very different. And we don't all agree about everything. I know, shocker, right? And even within churches, we don't agree. I'm sure you're still not shocked. My concern today is not that we don't agree, but that we often, too often, we don't disagree well. It seems to me that if disagreements are a given, if they're an inevitable part of life, and if you don't think they are, then, well, I disagree with you anyway, so that's at least one disagreement right there, then as Christians we should model something of doing this disagreeing thing well. And I'm talking about more than agreeing to disagree. I can agree to disagree if you like pineapple on a pizza. I'll struggle, but I'll manage it in the end. You know, you do your thing, I'll do mine, and I'll keep the pineapple for dessert kind of way. But if it's more important, say, how we disagree about how we talk about and value the most vulnerable in society, or how seriously we should take global warming, or issues of sex, sexuality and gender, the place and importance of the Bible, well then it's different. There is something about agree to disagree that implies it's all okay, either way, you take your view and I'll take mine. It doesn't matter that much. But we all have issues that aren't like that. We're disagreeing well doesn't have the simple get-out of agree to disagree, and we're all okay with that, because the issue is too important. In those circumstances, I don't have the answer. But I want to offer a format, adapted from Daniel Dennant, who's a legendary social psychologist, and a game theorist called Anatole Rappaport. Their context isn't ours, and I've adapted their words, but I just want to give them credit. To disagree well with you, I need to do four things. Firstly, I should attempt to re-express your position so clearly, so vividly, and so fairly that you hear my words and you think, thanks, I wish I had thought of putting it that way. I don't see that happen too often, do you? Too often we give a weak version of the opposing view and then we knock it down because it's so weak. Secondly, I should list any points of agreement with you, especially if they're not matters of general or widespread agreement. But you and I hold common ground here. As Christians, emphasising where we agree is key and helps give context to the disagreement. Third, I should mention anything that I've learned and appreciate from you. And this point and all of the others, they're to be done genuinely, not just as part of some negotiating formula. I want to be genuinely thankful for you. And then fourthly and lastly, and only then, can I offer critique and detail on why we disagree. We're doing this not just so the conversation is more polite, but because it gives the hope of progress. It provides a setting for honest, loving and humble exchange of views. It's part of living out Jesus' call to love your neighbour as yourself. Mark 12, 31. 
My point is, from what I see travelling around the UK and the UK church, it desperately needs this. And it's going to need it more and more. But not just inside church. What could it look like if we practice this in the church so that we're models of how to disagree when we're out and about in places where we work and rest and play? You see, maybe the way we disagree in church is modelling something for how we disagree in families, in a marriage, at work, on the allotment, on the tennis court, and in society. Wherever you find yourself this week, I'm not sure the world needs Christians who agree on everything. I don't have enough faith for that anyway. But to be a disciple is to be a learner, which means we've not got everything buttoned down, and so we won't always be on the same page on things, certainly not all at the same time. I'm convinced that the world needs Christians who disagree in a way that shows understanding, appreciation, love and respect inside and outside of our churches. That's what I'm praying for. Isn't that beautiful? What a beautiful picture of of what might be in in challenging days ahead. The band are coming up. I just want to close this morning. I've really, really appreciated all the people who've contributed in this series. Um, I've loved it. Uh, We've got one more week in a couple of weeks' time. But there's something that Alex said a few weeks ago that I just feel needs just another airing, and I'm going to build on it just as I close. So Alex was looking at Romans 6 and 7, and we were looking at how, how sin kills. Sin destroys people. It destroys lives. And how Christ's death and resurrection mean that we can live free from the chains of sin. And he reminded us of how we can live out that freedom. He said this, Paul's practical advice to fight sin isn't just stop sinning. It's offer those parts of your body to something else, to God, as instruments of righteousness. Then there was this genius bit. For example, it's difficult to lust when you're reading the Bible. You can't gossip while singing God's praises. You can't be lazy when you're cleaning the church or reorganizing the chairs. You can't be drunk whilst giving someone a lift to church. You can't be greedy with your money as you put that money in the offering box. You can't be a glutton while serving others with refreshments or donating to the food bank. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, Alex. Fighting sin isn't just sitting around trying not to sin. It's doing something else. It's offering your body as an instrument of righteousness. I thought that was brilliant advice. So good. So often we think the best way to individually flourish and collectively is just do nothing. It's not what it says. The advice was good. I'd love to paraphrase it, so I'm going to give my best Alex Yates slash Ken Benjamin in a moment. Romans 13 says that if we want to be great members of society, we don't sit back, we step forward. And Romans 14 says, if we want to stay united, it will not be possible in a passive way. We're going to have to be proactive. We're going to find it difficult to fall out with one another if we're expressing each other's opinions, positions so vividly, clearly, and fairly. We're going to stay united if we're constantly reminding each other of the things we do agree on. We'll avoid fracturing if we're constantly going to family members that we disagree with highlighting things that we've learned and appreciate about them. And we'll stay together if and only if, after all those things, after all those things, we then offer critique. Lucy said it earlier, didn't she? It's a German proverb, actually. The main thing is keeping the main thing the main thing. And what is the main thing? That is the main thing. 
That is the main thing. Our job in this fractured world is to keep Jesus front and center, because if we do that, we'll become the people God calls us to be united, dynamic, generous, and kind. And what's more, we'll be helping to bring transformation, healing, hope, and renewal to a world that desperately, desperately needs it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all you have done for us. Thank you so much for everything that we thought about in Romans 1 to 11. Father, please give us the courage uh, and the uh, wisdom and the patience and the love to live out 12 to 15. In terms of 13 and 14, please help us be great members of society. Where we see oppression, may we stand up. Where we see things that are wrong, may we challenge. May we be respectful, may we be people just on a day-to-day basis showing good to this world. And also within here, in terms of Romans 14, please help us to stay united, loving one another. Please may this church be a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus for a world that is falling out and fractured, we pray. Amen.